Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner. Welcome to this week's macro call from Washington, D.C. Everything is macro these days with with changes going on in the Biden administration. Lead us through the changes in Washington and Washington's perspective on Europe and Latin America. I'd like to welcome Chris Sarwinski, ACG Analytics Lead International Analyst, to take us through the week's macro analysis. Chris? Thanks, David. And yeah, I'd like to welcome everybody else on the panel as well from the ACGA team. We have Bardo Stravelb, Sovereign Risk Analyst, and John East, who covers everything Washington, D.C., our Director of Research. And as well, we have John Turek, who looks at central banks for us. With that said, John, finally, we have the from behind us. You know, we said this one time already. Now I can say it definitively for a second time. I don't think we're going to be discussing this again in the future, at least with, with President Trump. Now that this is behind us, can we move forward with a bipartisan policy agenda, anything other than reconciliation? Does this provide the catalyst for Congress to actually kick into gear and pass legislation? No, I don't think so. I think that the administration got off on a bad foot and it ignored Republicans, a sizable number of whom were wanted to come to the table. Then we had impeachment. The discussions right now are about an immigration reform package that even some Democrats can't support. I'm not sure if it has enough votes to pass. It certainly won't get 10 Republicans in the Senate as it's currently constituted. And then the other agenda item is an infrastructure bill. Democrats want to use reconciliation, which is a means of cutting Republicans off at the pass, even if some Republican proposals get included. So I don't see any material change. I love your sense of optimism. Now, let's touch on pandemic relief then, because the negotiations have been going on, you know, behind the scenes in the House. The individual committees are continuing the procedural work necessary to push individual parts of this bigger bill. Does this mean that we're still on track for, you know, a bill passed by March 14th when extended unemployment benefits expire? I think the deadline's tough to meet, but Democrats are really pulling out the stops in order to meet that deadline. A week from tomorrow, the House is supposed to pass all of the various titles that have been reported by committees that which were assigned reconciliation instructions, which is many of the committees. That would punt it over to the Senate before the end of this month. Then the Senate is probably going to make some changes, and the House will have to repass it. I doubt that the vote in the House will be materially different the second time around as it will be in eight days. Are there any updates on the content of that package? Uh, For example, we've, we've talked about minimum wage hikes. And Manchin pushed back on minimum wage, but his position is more nuanced than is talked about. He doesn't want to go above $11 an hour. He's not opposed in principle to raising the minimum wage, but it may be that the Senate parliamentarian uh, resolves this debate. She has already given some indication that uh, she would give an adverse ruling. The Democrats' hand was bolstered by a recent Congressional Budget Office report that showed a greater deficit impact than the negligible one that the Congressional Budget Office published very late in 2019. It's sort of hard to explain how the estimate changed so much in basically a year's time, but it still is not clear that it meets another provision of reconciliation rule, which is that the policy cannot be sort of epiphenomenal to the budgetary impact. So that is going to be a matter of parliamentary debate 
I suspect it's going to be struck in from the package. All right. You mentioned um, immigration. The Biden administration and Democrats writ large have been talking about immigration reform for quite some time. So the fact that they're moving something on that is not a surprise. However, is the timing of this between a reconciliation package on pandemic relief and a reconciliation package for infrastructure interesting to you? I mean, you, you said you don't think this can get the 10 votes necessary to pass in a regular order. Then why are they pushing? Is it just messaging? I think it's messaging. I think Biden wants to say that he tried, but even the White House acknowledges that it may have to break the package up and try to move pieces of it separately. So right now, this is more of a messaging document. There is really no border security in the proposal, which has not yet been released. In fact, the White House refused yesterday even to provide reporters with a fact sheet about whatever is going to be dropped in the House today by Congresswoman Sanchez, who will be filed next week in the Senate by uh, Senator Menendez. It's a poll terribly. And I don't see this as something that can move very quickly in the chamber. And so if you have a reconciliation bill sitting around to pivot to infrastructure, you can lay down your marker on immigration, please some of the pro-immigration folk. But there are already probably three defections just in the Texas delegation alone on the Democratic side in the House. And you know, there's a razor-thin majority in the House. And I suspect if three Hispanic Democratic lawmakers from Texas can't support it, there are probably other Democrats who can't support it either. Um, now, John, that brings us to infrastructure. Normally, and you've talked about this, infrastructure would be something that you can get bipartisan support because every single congressman and senator can go to their district or state and say, yeah, you know, I was responsible for that road right there. You know, I helped make that bridge. This is a little bit different because in order to get all of the green priorities that they seem to want and, and the number that they want in terms of total spend, you know, they're not going to be able to convince Republicans to get on board with that once again. So I know it's entirely too early, but I'd love to speculate about, you know, what are some of the contents of a potential infrastructure? Structure bill and how much would it potentially cost? Well, so the number is really in flux. I had penciled in a trillion dollars of net spending with roughly a trillion dollars of tax changes to help pay for it, making it a $2 trillion bill thereabouts, you know, give or take. Depending on if they use reconciliation, there are probably some things that would fall out that the administration wants to do, and that includes passenger rail, because a lot of that is funded through ticket sales. And so once you have a stream of revenue that is not coming from the federal government, then the budgetary effects for the federal government are decreased. It's not clear you can write provisions in a way to meet reconciliation rules, but you do run into some issues trying to use reconciliation because you have to justify everything from a budgetary standpoint. It's really not ideal, but there are some reports that the administration wants to go higher. That's going to make it even more unlikely to secure any Republican votes. There's a talk about a $3 trillion bill. The White House simply hasn't settled on a number, and we have some idea of tax code changes that Biden embraced during the election, but there's probably other revenue that has to come to the table, and the revenue mechanisms, all of them are pretty unpopular, and that's going to be an issue. Is If you start adding a trillion dollars here, a trillion dollars there, it's real money, and Republicans will certainly balk at the cost. So we're pretty far from you know, serious negotiations still, though, right? We're, we're, we're talking about towards the end of 2021 as opposed to, you know, let's say they, they do 
pass pandemic relief by this March 14th informal deadline? Is the alternative that they just automatically switch over to serious discussions on infrastructure, you know, in late March? Well, I think sooner than that. So the administration is supposed to release its infrastructure plan by the end of this month. That's going to be a heavy lift, getting two of these big packages done in, in such a short period of time. Now, what we've seen in Texas this week, this freezing the, the energy grid completely unprepared. Are any of these types of things going to alter the discussion around this infrastructure package? Well, I think it, it could. People are facing much higher energy bills. And then you want to pursue green energy policies, you know, like Germany or something where energy is 40% higher than any other country in Europe, especially at a time when people have unsteady employment, that it is regressive in a way. And so it's one thing when you have a lot of money and you can put solar panels on your roof and drive a Prius and, you know, brag to your friends. But for a lot of people, the energy costs, this winter are going to be staggering. And so that's the backdrop against which you're trying to legislate. Yeah, and, and I'm definitely more of a Tesla guy than a Prius guy. Um, but, I, you know, point taken there. I, you know, and so, John Turek, thinking about this more broadly, we've talked about the fact that we could be coming up on a time when markets are recovering, demand for hydrocarbons is recovering, and there's no swing shale producer to meet some of this demand. Yeah, for sure, Chris. I mean, I think, you know, one of the interesting things is that we're talking about these fairly robust levels of, you know, government spending and fiscal stimulus that's going to be coming into the pipe this year that's going to, you know, coincide with what seems to be a strong and effective vaccine rollout. And that's kind of coming when this, you know, the shale and, and in broader energy reaction function is kind of impaired either, you know, through more structural issues like decline rates, but also, you know, probably part of a more green initiative that could limit, you know, how much shale actually meets, you know, the growing demand probably starting in the second half of this year. And this is something we've already started to see in oil markets, especially, you know, in the WTI and Brent curves, we've seen with backwardation where the spot price is actually trading higher than, you know, the next year's price, which is just a sign that the market is relatively tight in anticipation of this pretty robust demand pickup on the back of these, you know, two things in terms of vaccine and pretty aggressive fiscal stimulus. And and the market is wondering, you know, kind of, you know, where is the oil going to come from? You know, I think we have a view that this will probably be pretty big, you know, comparative advantage for, you know, OPEC plus in terms of filling that gap. But, you know, it's definitely probably going to be a theme for the next year, at least, is this really pretty robust and broad recovery and kind of juxtaposing that with a lot of Biden's green initiatives. Now, Bart, let's shift over to the heat map. Chile is the country in focus. Can you give us an update on, you know, global vaccination efforts and, and the global caseload? Yeah, there's some, uh, thank you, Chris. There's some good news in terms of pandemic. You know, the, the growth rate globally of the pandemic is now 6%. It's been in single digits now for a few weeks, and that's the lowest since the very, very beginning of the pandemic, and it's continuously declining. So that supports the, the narrative that John Turek laid out earlier of kind of a robust and broad-based recovery in important economies like the UK, like the US parts of Europe, the growth rate is is around that global average and declining. Those are all good indicators. In terms of vaccines, about a third of the countries in the heat map have now started their vaccination campaigns. There's still big global gaps. Most of sub-Saharan Africa hasn't started. Central America hasn't started. But in a lot of large economies, you now see, you know, both robust purchases of vaccines and the start of a rollout. And, And Chile has really leapt 
to the front in Latin America. About two weeks ago, it had barely started. Now, close to 10% of the population is vaccinated, so that's somewhere between the EU average and where the U.S. is. U.S. is at 15% and is really making good progress. And that, uh, you know, is already one of the stronger and more established economies in Latin America. So it sets the country up for a, a really good economic revival later this year. With the vaccines, right, we've been very critical of Europe in the past for, you know, being very slow to commit to these purchases and slow to roll them out. And there's also just less of a willingness or trust on the part of the public to actually participate in these vaccination campaigns. You know, that said, you noted positively that, you know, that appears to be, at least portions of that appear to be changing in Europe. Whether the public takes it or not, we're not even, we don't have to worry about demand questions yet. Supply issue was really an embarrassment. And that, you know, the several EU commissioners saying that, you know, vaccines were not a race, which actually, that's exactly what vaccination is. It's a race to get there as quickly as possible so that you can reopen the economy and get back to normal. They just announced another round of serious purchases. And, you know, now you see countries getting to about 5%, so about a third of where the U.S. is, but ramping up fairly quickly. So it's changing. You know, some point, there'll have to be some sort of forensic look back as to why this went wrong again, why the EU as a coordinating mechanism didn't work when this was you know, entirely predictable that, that that would be needed. But at the moment, they seem to have sorted out at least the, the major kinks and it is it has started to work. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.